0: So, what excites me is getting off planet, not because I want to leave Earth. No, 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 no. We need to use space technology to help save life on Earth, to protect the environment. This is an environment, a place where we live. We don't need to foul our I think we need to be developing the capabilities hugely from space instead of farther fossil fuels, things like space solar power. I think we ought to look to space for helping solve the climate crisis, but perhaps. Sunshades at the Earth Sun L1 to offset climate change, to temperature increases. And I think we got to start moving industry and mining off the world so that we can no longer damage the, the nest that we're being
1: Hello, and welcome to CultureScape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers that built nerd culture. If you're watching or listening to this, there is a strong case that you are into science fiction. And I'm sure you've imagined stories about traveling to other worlds with concepts like faster than light travel, the concept of generation ships and antimatter drives, and of course, things like solar sails. Makes you ask the question, but what would it really take for us to get to a distant planet like Mars, or perhaps something much farther away like Alpha Centauri? Well, today's guest is a scientist, futurist, and author. He's also one of the world's foremost experts on solar sails. His latest project with Bain Books is an anthology uh, collection exploring these ideas titled Humanity's Hope for a Better Future at a New Star. And separate from on top of all that, he is also a scientist for NASA, which is unaffiliated from his book and other projects. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, uh, Mr. Les Johnson. Thanks for having me peter i'm glad to be here yeah i i greatly appreciate it. researching your work seeing what you've done you have quite an impressive resume um i forgive me because i'm probably gonna ask a lot of those really stupid questions you probably get all the time so uh so i hope you'll hold in there
0: i, I don't think i'll run away and flee and I, I don't view any question as stupid because if you don't know the answer it's a good question right
1: yeah yeah no that, that's how people learn Okay, so let's start here. Tell us about uh, your book.
0: Well, sure. Uh, the title of the book is actually The Ross 248 Project. I have a copy of it here. Uh, Humanity's Hope for a Future at a New Star is kind of the sub to that. And it's, it's really uh, it's a collection of short stories and non-fiction essays by various science fiction writers, many of whom, if you're uh, listening to this pretty science fiction, we we'll familiar with some of these writers. Some are new. Um, and it really is trying to answer the question. You know, if you go to all the trouble to travel to another star, which I've written about in some of my books, and I can talk about some of those a little bit later. But if you're going to go to all that trouble and and undergo the massive effort it's going to take to send people from here across light years of space, chances are you're going to get to a planetary system that will not have an already available, ready-to-inhabit birth tree point. Uh, That's only in Star Trek, right, where they get the M-class planets or in Star Wars where every planet is optimized for people, uh, at least that are in the stories. In all likelihood, the worlds would be very different. They'll be like Mars or something like Venus. There might be some that are like Earth was a billion years ago. Um, And and we'll either have to adapt ourselves or we'll have to do something like terraforming where we take that world and potentially shape it to be something that, that people can survive on. So I, I, this, this this story collection is trying to realistically look and entertain uh, the reader with, you know, some of the scenarios that we might face uh, when we get somewhere and it's not immediately have You know, can, can the people who've made that voyage undertake probably a centuries-long endeavor to make a 2.0 of Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the challenges that they'll have and the struggles that they'll have to do
1: i think the the collection is fascinating it reminds me of um older science fiction stories you look at stuff back in the 30s and 40s where they were trying to imagine what space travel might look like and i'm totally into that i love that uh, middle of the century uh science fiction Uh, so you in your day job when you're not moonlighting as an author you are a scientist for nasa correct
0: that's right yeah i do advanced in space propulsion which is A fancy way of saying, I do what happens, I I get the spacecraft, uh, try to come up with ways to get spacecraft faster across deep space. You know, rockets, talk about mid-century. Rockets are last century, man. Uh, That's how we get off the ground and get to space, but they're terribly inefficient, pound for pound. What you need is you need things that are thousands of times more efficient to get thrust than a rocket, to be able to cover, you know, millions of miles, if not billions and trillions of miles quickly. And I work on the next generation propulsion systems for use in space that'll take our spacecraft faster and farther than ever before. So that's that's what I've spent most of my career working.
1: Yeah, it's solar sails is a concept that uh, can you explain that a little bit to readers that might not be familiar?
0: Oh sure, sure. Um, you may not realize it, but when you're outside on a sunny day, or you're you're they're in your house listening and watching this video cast podcast, and the lights are on. Uh, the light source, whether it be the light in your room or uh, the sun, is emitting particles of light called photons. Now, these photons are discrete little particles, and they have momentum. They don't have rest mass, but they do have momentum. So you can think of them as like little BBs that are bouncing off of you. And as they bounce off of you, they impart some of that momentum to you. And and the best analogy really is a sailing ship on the ocean. Right? You put the big sail up. On a mast, the wind blows. As the wind reflects from a sail, it pushes on the sail. The sail's attached to your sailing ship by this big mast, and it drags your ship with it, right? Well, the light in the room, or the light outside on a sunny day, is reflecting from you, and it's pushing Now, compared to the wind, it's a very, very small push. In fact, if you were to go out at noon on a sunny day, low humidity, humidity and the sun is right over mid, The about a force of sunlight on two football fields of area is the same as you would feel holding a quarter and a nickel in your hand. Not much force. But when you get out of Earth's gravity and away from the atmosphere, and you're in space, Newton's laws work really, really well. And as this light reflects from this large, lightweight, reflective sail that looks like a big, lightweight sheet of aluminum foil, it's going to push on it constantly. The sun's always shining in space, right? And that constant acceleration can take a spacecraft at very high speeds, can make it very efficient, pound for pound, at doing deep space travel. So, uh, we're, we're working on this t- capability. It's been demonstrated in Earth orbit. Uh, the Japanese flew a demonstration in deep space back in 2010. NASA, under my leadership, uh, technically for the SAIL, launched one last November on the Artemis 1 launch, which a secondary payload. But unfortunately, like many of the secondary payloads on that flight, there were 10 small spacecraft that were flown there. Um, Our spacecraft never called home, so it never had a chance to deploy the sail or demonstrate it. If things had been working as they were supposed to be working, I would be in the mission operations center right now, uh, helping the sail navigate its way to an asteroid. But we're trying to recover from that and come up get another demonstration put together so that we can actually start using solar sails for small spacecraft, uh, in space for science purposes in the future so what kind
1: of one of the problems i believe with solar sails and you can tell me if i'm wrong is that uh as we understand them that they may not be like the best option for if you're trying to you know get humans to travel through space but they are great for smaller craft is that do i have that about right
0: that's right and that's because of the technological limitations you have right now remember i mentioned that it took a uh an area equivalent to two football fields. To get just basically the amount of force is a quarter <laughs> the exertion of the palm of your hand. And when you do that, and you think about, okay, everybody, eyes don't glaze over. We're gonna do a little math. If I had a whiteboard, I'd draw it on there. I'd get my my jacket out that has a patch on the sleeve, so I look like a university professor, right? Here we go. Force equals mass times acceleration. F equal m a. That equation's got a balance. And at any distance from the sun, if this is my sail and the light's reflecting from it. There's a certain amount of force on that area, right? And it's fixed because the sunlight's constant, it's shining on And what that means is for the spacecraft that's attached to that sail to start moving, it's gotta get acceleration and you want that A to be large. People are having nightmarish visions of, of middle school algebra at this point. What you want <laughs> is that A to be large and that means in order to balance the equation, the M, the term, has to be small. And right now, we can only build sails of a certain size, and therefore, we can only get so much acceleration out of them. Which means we kind of really need smaller spacecraft. Now, in the future, with better materials, we might be able to do like they do in Star Trek, Star Wars. I think one of the Star Wars movies they had a, they had a solar sail on the evil guy's mm-hmm. ship. Doug Cooper, or something like that. By the way, it was a poor design. It was a black sail. I could double the efficiency immediately by making it like reflective. But they didn't consult me in the room, so they should yeah. So what you want to do in the future is you might have sales that instead of you know thousands of square feet in area, they might be square miles in area, and then we can attach a spacecraft to. Them. But for now we can't build anything that big, so we have to use small fish. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's almost that's mind boggling to me to imagine a spacecraft that's miles long. But yeah, it, it seems like for a lot of the projects, especially if you want to travel outside our solar system, you would have to have something with, uh, maybe not necessarily that big, but it has to have a huge amount of capacity.
0: Well, yeah, the spacecraft wouldn't have to be that big. That's how big the sail would be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just to give you an example, uh, the one we launched back in November, had it deployed. The spacecraft was the size of two looms that bread, okay? But the sail was the length of a school on each side, okay? And in the middle of that sail was the spacecraft, and it was the size of two names of bread. Uh, we're working on one now. It's called Solar Cruiser, where the spacecraft is about the size of a, uh, a large garbage can. Okay, one of the big, you know, gallon, 50-gallon drone garbage cans. But the sail is almost 20,000 square feet. Okay? So if it's, you know, the floor area of Monvito. So, you know, the spacecraft can be smaller than the sail and area, but those sails are really thin because they have to be lightweight. So they're thinner than a human bear. We're about two and a half micro sticks so yeah and wow. if we were in person i'd have a sample i could hand to you you can handle it it's pretty robust but it's extremely lightweight
1: it's it's pretty amazing stuff you were you are working on the the tech that will be a huge part of you know interplanetary space travel in the future it, it's kind of fascinating to me to talk to you because you're out you're an actual scientist you're an actual person that's working on these projects you know that maybe not you know my day but you know my kids or grandkids day, this stuff is going to enable them to you know to travel to who knows where you know pluto or beyond
0: i think we're going to go to the stars with a sale in fact um my recent non-fiction book that came out last fall from princeton press i've got the cover back you know it's called traveler's guide to the stars it's a non-fiction book that talks about how we might really go to the stars and in the book i go through a lot of the advanced propulsion options that i've looked at over my career things like here's going uh fusion drive antimatter, uh wormholes all those kind of things and, and kind of given my assessment of what's the most realistic thing you might be able to do and i believe it'll be a, uh, a descendant of the solar sail the sales we're working on now that will be propelled not just by sunlight but by high energy lasers. i think we'll have big lasers out in space that are like gigawatt class lasers that will shine really bright light on the sails to accelerate faster and faster out of the solar system but I think that's how we'll send our first robotic probe to another star um, in a reasonable trip time, which I mean a few wow. hundred meters, not tens of thousands. So I, I can see that happening in, in your kids' lifetime easily. Not with people, it'll be a robotic probe. But I think the first interstellar robotic probe needs be launched within their super years.
1: In- it's really exciting stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure- <laughs> you have a very cool field that you work at. So help, help people, help myself and the listeners here. So what are the, the logistical hurdles that it would take for us to go from our planet to a place like Mars with humans uh, evolved in that equation? Because I think a lot of us have this, this me- in our heads, we're thinking you know, just like the lunar missions, uh, you know, you have a rocket, you have the multi-piece part, you get to the moon, you come back. It's not as simple as that, Right.
0: Well, the, the moon we were able to put everything on a single rocket and launch it at one time, and and that made it a lot easier. Um, So mm-hmm. the, the the rocket that carried the astronauts to from the moon was on the Saturn V. Uh, the lander that took them to the T-Ton-T surface and back up from the surface to the rocket that brought the phone was on the same launch, and you didn't have to do in orbit assembly of anything. You just had to do a with in orbit, which was pretty hard in 1969, right? Uh, but they did it. Uh, to go to Mars is a lot more complicated. Uh, Mars is much farther away, and you have to have a lot more energy to get there in a reasonable amount of time, which means you need a lot bigger rockets, a lot more propellant. Uh, you have to send enough supplies, not just for a week trip, like we did to the moon, but realistically trips to Mars are going to be round for, at best, week years. So you've got to send a habitat large enough to keep your crew, uh, able to move around, exercise, uh, get away from each other. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine being locked in the Winnebago with my three best friends for three years. I mean, somewhat would a lie, <laughs> yeah, they're,
1: they're probably not going to be your three best friends by the no, time that's done. Right?
0: So people are going to need, you know, their own space. They're going to need places to exercise, that kind of thing. So the vehicle has to be not a few, but it has to be, you know, something like the space station where people stay at your room, your time. And, and we've gotten used to do it, but it's pretty big. And in order to move that to the speeds you need to get to to get to them of launchers, so you have to have a pretty big propulsion system. Now, we could do that with chemical rockets today in that three years' return, but you would have probably, you know, five to 10 launchings of big rockets like the Starship or NASA's big launch system. filled totally with just rocket propulsion that you would put together in stages up in space like Tinko and burn through the fuel, and after you've used to you throw away one of those stages, and then you go to Mars, and have your lander you come back up, and have more stages to come back. Now we could do that chemically, and, and we probably could have done that in the 70s. Uh, the problem is, you know, understanding biological effects of people in deep space over three years, the space radiation environment, keeping them alive, the technology to do a lander to not just go under a small moon, but a planet, right? And safely bring people back up to space from that planet. So you'd have to build you know, a rocket designed to lift off from another world, which we've really not done much of here. Um, and it's all doable. I, I think it's just a matter of, of resources and will at this point to do it with existing tech. Now, if you if you want to use less propellant, fewer launches, make it less complicated, you you use what's called a nuclear thermal rocket. And these are doable. We've tested one in the world in the U.S. and way back in the 60s, the River project was put on the shelf It was project in at the time. There's a lot of interest in reviving that. There are some funded projects within the U.S. government uh, to do that. And basically, a nuclear reactor a virtual spacecraft, and you put a thermal rocket, instead of using the energy of chemicals to bust them, you flow the fuel over a hot nuclear reactor that like generates power at your local nuclear power plant. And what that does is it superheats the exhaust, which provides essentially twice the thrust per panel of fuel. So you can cut your fuel load in half uh, if you have a nuclear thermal rocket. Now, that nuclear thermal rocket wouldn't be used to get from the surface of the Earth to space. You use a conventional rocket for that, for safety reasons. Uh, you wouldn't use the nuclear stage until you were safely out of space, away from the Earth, so there's no risk of your really firing up, go to Mars and come back. Uh, that would reduce the trip time a little bit, but its biggest payoff is reduces the amount know, of mass you have to mark. Should have been at you know, five to ten thousand pounds of dollars per pound of well, that's expensive all that fuel So we could do it today also with nuclear rockets. So I think a Mars mission I see that happening maybe, you know, while I'm still you know, walking on the planet, I think it's uh the first humans to to go and set foot on the planet and do exploration. It's you. Just a matter of do we want to do it where we're building a tool
1: yeah that that's kind of what i get too it feels like that that is a totally doable thing except it feels like and i'd love to hear your your thoughts on this since you are a science fiction writer on top of a scientist it feels like the the cultural obsession or the interest uh in the u.s around the world for uh projects like that space travel it seems quite a bit dimmed even from like my parents day It's So it's like these things are doable, but, you know, you have to get the funding, you have to get the permission, you have to be able to make it happen. And uh, I don't know, I don't know, that that seems like a tricky thing to try to maneuver. Why do you think that is? Why do you think, although we have a huge cultural interest in like science fiction, there isn't the same kind of buzz for things like NASA, like rocket propulsion, like the projects that you're working on?
0: So that's a hard one to answer. I think there are a lot of pressing problems that we have, right, uh, in our societies that, that people are more concerned about. Um, and it's hard to you know, prioritize, you know, feed the hungry dirt bars, right? I don't, I don't think it's that simple a dichotomy because the amount of money that is spent on space exploration is extremely small compared to the rest of the budget. I think NASA gets something on the order of three tenths of 1% of the federal budget. It's very, very small. Um, and space exploration in the world probably was just, you know, even a fraction of that compared to global GDP. So you, you could eliminate all space exploration and you still had it was, it, it Um That said, what we gained from this is huge. understanding of our own planet. We'll learn more about studying the biosphere of another planet, potential biosphere, we don't want to be there, but the, the environment of the planet. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of uh, science for the sake of science, because as we learn more and more about the universe, it lets us better understand ourselves, and it lets us develop technologies that improve the quality of life on Earth. Uh, you know, I'm looking at your your office there, and probably looking at mine. Most of the innovations that we have in our everyday life came from fundamental science, not um, science just so, you know, like the knowledge we're our in the beginning, just what's on there, what's over there, and our ancestors from all over the world, whether you're Polynesian, uh, you know, you left some continent and, and sailed out into the oceans and settled the Polynesian islands because you had some incest, British, and you wanted to go and explore and settle in a new place, right? Um, and, it, you know, the Chinese have done that, and Europeans have done that, we've all, all cultures have done that. And I think we're at the edge of that sea now. It's time to, you know, set sail and see what there is to learn and what there is to do. I also don't think people realize how integral space technology is to your everything else, if you were ask to ask them. Person on the street, you know, how would your life be affected if all the space satellites were? Most people would have trouble telling you how they would be adversely affected, and you said all. When in fact, it would be a chance drive.
1: That's um, a great point.
0: You, you would have, you know, your GPS for your phones, will navigate, you're going to be able to dig that, and you have to go back to have to read a map, which a lot of people don't like Um to do. Um, your active weather forecast will go out the window. Uh, forecasting and, and understanding hurricanes and severe weather was going to strike would be gone. You uh, wouldn't have the instantaneous communication that we have that brought us here. King Charles's coronation, uh, those events, these events coming out of Ukraine and South Asia, you know, globally around the world, banks transfer money via satellite instantly in the currency markets. Uh, if you if you go to a local gas station and look on the roof, there's a satellite dish. And, and that satellite dish isn't for people to sit in the break room and watch direct TV. It's because they do all of their credit checks to bank cards on secure satellite. The internet's not secure. And, and so if the satellite goes down, you can't buy these things on your credit card. And some of these gas stations or food stores or Walmart, uh, inventory management stuff, The supply chain, the trucks are all routed by GPS and satellite inventory people. So, and that's not even the military aspects of it. You know, watching what the other people are doing to make sure we're not surprise the surprise attack of some kind, which helps keep the peace. And and I think this this space infrastructure moves people. was like space is not relevant. Like yes, it is. <laughs> you use it every day, and you don't realize you use it. Your modern life depends on it, and you have no idea how bad it would be if we lost access to space. And so. This, this evolution of people in space, space mining, lunar exploration, lunar cell, system lunar, arch- you know, industrial development for resources that you know, scarce on Earth, they solar power, all of those things are ultimately going to benefit us here on the ground, and it's going to come from exploration and development. So I- I'm not, you know, I'm not a shy wallflower about that. Question. <laughs> and, and and I really believe we need to shout out from the root.
1: Yeah, nor should you be a wallflower. Uh, uh, one of the great points, uh, previous interview guests we had, Patrick Chilas, who I believe is another author for Bain, he made the point that a lot of the research and things we know in the realm of prosthetics, a lot of that actually came out of the space program, which was a bit of a surprise to me. I didn't, I didn't quite. Um, understand that. But where you really look down to what the space race and research in the space has given us, I mean, so many of our advances in computing just came out of the projects in the 60s. While it doesn't feel like it's directly beneficial programs at NASA, you know, down the line, someone takes the ideas you guys come up with, uh, uses them for some kind of engineering application, then we all are the beneficiaries of that.
0: And again, it's also fortunately a uh, dual feeding path here in that we might have some innovation that industry goes out and uses, but the scale at which industry uses them, dollar value for the industry does dwarfs what with space budget. And so an innovation or invention for where NASA goes out in the private sector, gets billions of more dollars of investment, gets mass produced and trucked and then we make use something in our next generation spacecraft. And and you, know, you gave the right example of computer uh, computers really uh, advanced dramatically, uh, basically in World War II with code-breaking. Um, and then again, in the 50s and 60s, we the space race, uh, the, the military needed them for military purposes and NASA needed it for space exploration. So it was advanced and then the industry took over and made it faster and cheaper and spent hundreds of billions, of about trillions of dollars to miniaturize it, to get the whole thing out here, you know, your phone. And now NASA turns around and says, oh, good, we're going to use the technology from this phone to make our satellites small and way less so that my solar sail can now take a spacecraft to a new destination because the spacecraft works, right? So it, it's a cycle. And and what we learn from the missions that I'm trying to enable, they come back and help us do things commercially that we can't even do. And that's the cycle of innovation and commercialization that really works well. Uh, it's a government industry partnership and it has worked well in this shoot
1: now i'm a libertarian generally so i like private ventures uh, more you know that's kind of i feel like the the economy the power of the invisible hand can lead to things that uh are just impossible for government however there is something to say about having a program like this have doing what you do versus you know what we see at spacex um what do you think that you can do and NASA can do better than say SpaceX can? why do you think we need both or perhaps why not?
0: Well, I'm a big advocate and a big fan of SpaceX, Blue Origin, and the commercial launch providers. I think what a lot of people don't realize is NASA got out of the commercial launches I mainly include one stuck in took the challenge it was interested, And so long before SpaceX we were paying private industry to launch our enemy rockets or uh, we sell a spacecraft to large or otherwise it's the commercial laws provider, commercial industry i was been in 60s uh what, what elon has done and what uh, bezos is probably do is up in the business model and can come up with ways with reusability and production and whether you do development and tasks to make it a lot less expensive and more affordable, which is interesting it, it lets our dollars to a lot farther. so so first of all i don't think there is competition I think it's we we always repeated our or not always throughout my entire career. I guess, uh, we have always had economic competition the private industry in lots of ways Okay, and um, I think that's a great way, and that's the way it should continue. The way I see what we do is, uh, for, first off, for science, where there is no economic return, things like the, in the James Webb Space Telescope, which is giving us you know views of the universe never before really seen. It. There's no economic return for that, that right now. That's just science. And so I can't see the marketplace saying, "Oh, let's go build a James Webb Space Telescope for billions of dollars, you know, to see what's out there." I don't think that would necessarily happen because there isn't necessarily the market for that. However, well, well. the James Webb Space Telescope was built a partnership between NASA scientists and engineers the industry. There were contractors involved. Like. He told them, they "Innovated the technology the went into the telescope." The work that I do. We're developing a solar sail. My goal is after we fly this first sail mission to an asteroid or wherever, I get out of the business. And the companies that work with me in taking the technology, and licensing, and then they go market it in commercial marketplace uh, and let that invisible hand take over to market it and, and let it go fly and get more efficient and more cost to go to the missions that, uh, say, mining company or other communications company wants to use the so, sail. So I view us as kind of the, uh, the front end of innovation and development. And, uh, we program with industry and industry run as often. And one
1: of the interesting things that I, this, you, when I was listening to, uh, a TEDx talk that you did in Game ready for this interview, you made this fabulous point that, um, until really 1992, we didn't really know too much about the planetary bodies outside our own solar system, you know, it's a reminder that, you know, you know, I hear this sometimes where people are like, well, why are we spending all this money on NASA? I mean, we're, look at everything that was promised and how, you know, how a uh, few miles we've made in the realm of progress. But, but when I look at you, I hear you uh, do the TEDx lecture, read your book. A good point that you do make is that we are just so in the beginning of all this stuff. I mean, if you think of, you know, we first get the first rockets, you know, you know, to get off the earth and in the 1950s, in the sixties, don't we, we are only beginning to understand the planetary bodies outside our solar system. I mean, we're just so much in the beginning. What does that mean to you? Exactly. When you think about where we're at with this tech and where do you think it could be potentially going? And what excites you about the future? Of uh space research and the kind of work that you do.
0: Well, it's a lot rolled into one. I, I guess the best analogy I have come up with or where we are in our development is if you look back at the history of human exploration on planet Earth, from what we spread out of you know, the Middle East and Africa, and basically people spread out all over the world from there, um, to rockets and space station in their world. I would compare the state of technology. We are today for interstellar travel. On that, you know, relative to where those first explorers were, we're in a <laughs> Okay, yeah. so we're trying. We're figuring out how to put something in the water and go a few miles downstream of our hats by floating downstream. Okay, I'm not even sure we have a paddle or our canoe right now. So, with regard to you know, com- com- you know, to make that comparison bro for- out of Africa to the space station, you know, our, our status for getting to Alpha Centauri is we're in a kind floating down, It's going to be a while before we have steamships, uh, uh, you know, electric power engines, nuclear submarines, and uh, rockets and, and spaceships to, to get to Alpha Centauri. That said, uh, it is a super exciting, this is the most exciting time for space exploration in my lifetime since I was born and being, uh, uh, I was being about 62. I was seven years old when Neil Armstrong walked up I remember my parents waking me up. It was late at night, it was 11 o'clock. Uh, I on a little black and white television, imagine that, a grainy black and white television. I was probably wearing little footy pajamas, right? And I got to watch this historic event, I had no idea what was happening, uh, until afterwards, they I got all excited about space the people that are making the innovations happen today that are making space exciting and accessible are the billionaires who are my generation who saw that when they were children and said i'm going to help make that move forward and they got money and they're good right they're making it more affordable and more economic so i view this as an echo space. i think this is the most exciting time in space development since 1968. so uh, if we play it right it'll continue uh, my big fear is that it's dependent on the personality of the people who run this companies, And if something happens to them, then it all just kind of it. We have to institutionalize this revolution, get companies that can find a way to make a profit so that people will keep doing it like we do with communications and GPS and all the things I mentioned previously, so that the expansion of humans will themselves change be- um So what excites me is getting off-planet, not because I want to leave Earth, no, 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 no. We need to use space technology to help save life on Earth, protect the environment. This is a garden a place where we live. We don't need to foul our limits. I think we need to be developing the capability to get energy from space instead of burning fossil fuels based space solar power. I think we ought to look to space for helping us solve the climate crisis by perhaps sunshade instead of the Earth Sun L1 to build, offset climate change with temperature increases. And I think we've got to start with the industry and mining off the world so that we can no longer damage the, the nest that we're in. Um, so I envision the future in a few hundred years where we're getting clean energy from space, our, our resources for our electric infrastructure are not coming from Africa and children being forced to work in mines to get a cobalt uh, for Chinese you know, battery manufacturers, but we're getting it from asteroids uh, and, and we're powering our automatic in the energy from space. So I have a a very uh, glass hat full utopian uh, view of what the future can hold for us if we put our minds to.
1: I think this is a very exciting time to be alive. My dad is a huge uh, space buff, NASA buff. He's really into all this stuff, so that's kind of why I'm a bit more familiar than the average person. So, like the idea that we, we we already have commercial space travel on some level. Uh, it, it's not, I mean, we're not traveling to the moon yet, but it, it is – you can get off of uh earth's basic atmosphere so that's pretty good um you know we are looking at the commercialization of like maybe mining asteroids uh maybe we could do even there are projects i know going on in the antarctic they're looking at like okay so how could we possibly make a colony on the moon work you know how could we meet those um conditions so that's all super Exciting. I mean, I really am excited to see what we are capable of doing in the future. However, like you point out, part of the problem with uh, space research, this area, you know, we're trying to to make the dreams of tomorrow reality. Now, is that the the just the astronomical uh, numbers of money that you have to do, have to work on these projects? It's <laughs> not-
0: Let's put this into perspective. No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, it's expensive. Doing anything is expensive. I, I I would say that if you go out and you get in your car and you drive across town, uh, every mile of interstate is like a million dollars to build. Okay, uh, that bridge that you drive across the river—that was probably $10, 15 million dollar bridge to build. Uh, anything we do that's a big infrastructure takes uh, money. Space exploration and space projects are not that much more expensive than other things we do as a society. They really are. Uh, The the comparison I like to give is, uh, and this is way out there because the U.S. budget has gotten much larger than when I first did this. Um, If you take uh, a a bag of pennies, okay, and you say each penny is worth a billion dollars with a B, okay, NASA stacks up 23 pennies, okay? And then you dump out a bag full of pennies, each representing a billion dollars for the rest of what the U.S. government spends money on. And you're dumping out about five thousand pins, okay, compared to NASA's twenty-three. So I have to I have to challenge the assertion that it's astronomically expensive. It isn't. It is expensive for you and me. I don't know what a billion is. I have no idea. That's unfathomable to me. My retirement savings are you know you know like this. However, in the scope of what government does. They could eliminate NASA completely and it would make no difference in our budget deficit at all, practically speaking. Uh, it would just be not even those. It would be air over the ground, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry to to jump on you about that. Oh
1: no, you're fine. You're fine. i i w I wanna hear your take really on this, your opinion.
0: Well to realize this the scope. We don't get any NASA, I will say we cannot speaking as an outside person. I'm looking at all the you data, know, you can look at NASA's budget on there area. NASA doesn't get anywhere close to what other federal programs get. It just does. And and it does as much as it can with a little. And uh, I think it's a lot for you and me. I'm not trying to make light of the fact that a billion dollars is real money. But in in the context of of the massive loss of money that we spend on the United States, it's a small opportunity as a society.
1: My, My point that I was trying to get to is that the work you do, places like SpaceX, it's really dependent on the whims of of either the people the people who either hold the purse strings or people who are billionaires, you know, uh, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel types, and so
0: I can't fund our yeah. own space program.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: going to happen. You're exactly right.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it, there is always that concern where you're so reliant on personalities, or you have to keep, you know, you have to keep, go keep with wherever the tides take you, I mean, that, that makes people like you, your job a bit more difficult because you're like, you want reliable funding. You want to know that the project you're working on tomorrow, today, you'll be able to try and to complete tomorrow.
0: And, and that's been difficult um, because so uh, it, it's just difficult to sustain funding across uh, presidential administrations and across Congresses because they all are responsive to their electorate and the people who elected and their, and their own priorities. And that guides how they tell the federal agencies to spend the money. And again, in the private sector, you know you've got the whims of what the CEOs of these companies want to do with their money. Right. Um, so you're exactly right. So something like this, unless you're independently wealthy like those folks, which most of us are not, uh, you really are at the whims of other people's decision making in terms of so.
1: So hopefully, it ha- I mean, it has been a blessing to have something like uh, SpaceX. I mean, it, that is a good thing. That is a, that is a positive change. But, you know, it, that doesn't completely solve the issue or the concerns that you guys have. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Les. Uh, how does one become a, a scientist slash book author? What, what was your journey uh, f- to becoming this uh, very interesting person that you are?
0: Well, I appreciate you being interested in what I do. I have to tell you, I, I feel uh, truly less. Um, I, I'm a person of faith, and I feel like I'm a faith saver because I've, I've had a good health, uh, loving, committed spouse, my kids who uh, support what I do. Uh, I have a parents who evaluated an education. We didn't have a lot of money, my father died when I was in high school. I didn't get a job or, 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 or to get the grades to go to school, but after that Neil Armstrong moment, and did my older sister have me, uh, let me stay up late to watch Newgrounds of, of Star Trek, the original series uh, back in birth, uh, going across the, the galaxy. I knew I wanted to do something associated with space, just space exploration. I started reading every science fiction novel I to get my hands on, and I decided I wanted to be a scientist. And I didn't really know what a scientist did at the time, but by golly, I wanted to be one, because I knew I'd never get astronauts, because I had glasses that were as thick as Coke models. When I was, you know, a teenager, uh, so yeah, I couldn't be a pilot or anything like that. So, the astronaut fittings, you never ran into any of mine. Um, and so, I, I got good scholarships. I went to uh, a good liberal arts college in Kentucky, in Pennsylvania University, and originally from a great chair in went to Vanderbilt for graduate school. Applying to NASA, get a job at NASA, all the while reading science fiction. The personally funded by graduate research at Vanderbilt. At an opening here we at NASA Marshall in Alabama, and I applied, and I thought it'd be a good spot to get that job, and he didn't hire me, darn it. Uh, so, I had to take my lumps, uh, and I ended up working for a contractor that was doing defense space research. It was Ronald Reagan's Star Wars defense editor, and he's in learning aids. But my heart was never in the shame. I mean, defensive Why fine, the we do it, I questions go to questions about be as they said. It's just about all my reports. I mm-hmm. an opportunity uh, a little bit later to get into NASA. I did it. Well, I've been there over 30 years, so I had a wonderful career. working working on advanced tech, and some experiments, some of been successful, some not. That's a really fascinating, some of the smartest people in the all over the world. And all the while, I uh, kept going to science fiction conventions. Uh, I don't put on a or dress up like a you know, a NASA guy. <laughs> um, but but i love science fiction and i got to meet some of my favorite writers that i read the books when i was a kid and an adult people like ben boga were the greatest here in my home i had a general lariat and i got to meet some sort of the greats and um about 15 years ago or so a friend of mine i had read one of my non-fiction books popular science and books about solar signal i a about that it. pretty awesome in nature and sold well. Not, it's not a textbook, it's, it's all about sailing. And he uh, had just sold his personal novel to Bayon Books, and I was Travis Taylor. And I had worked with Travis previously on space projects on solar sails. Okay. And he had just sold his first novel to Bay And we were talking at a science fiction convention about exploration and uh, how we might go back to the moon one day. And it turns out that his publisher, Tony Weiscoff, which published her bad books, she's actually in the booth next to us at the barber team right? And she leaned over to her new author, Travis, and said, Travis, he us send me a book proposal. I might be interested. So we did. And uh the book Back to the Moon that Travis and I co-wrote uh, was a success and wrote a sequel called On to the Asteroid, the last bird of band auto rider So all right, popular science, uh, uh books like the one The Traveler's Guide, which will be my best-selling book so far, actually, published by Princeton Press Prince last fall. Uh, it's the first book I've had that's been translated into five different languages, which I'm super excited. About. And uh my science fiction books sell well enough at Bayon that they keep coming back for more. <laughs> I've got a couple more in the works, including another book with Travis, uh but there are two books with Travis actually for Bayon. And the latest of course is the one you just mentioned, which is just anthology, to Ross T 48 our project so that's kind of how it all came about and what what the, the key factor of that is my goal now is to find many games I, I really want to help touch those kids in middle school college age young people i get them thinking positively about the future different interest in silence and we here and we'll get them looking for in this and i think i do that or i try to do that some good podcasts like this or writing books we're going to science fiction conventions and giving talks and lectures for the cover i just want to let people know that tomorrow doesn't have to be off than today. tomorrow can be better and uh, people can roll up their sleeves and make it so that's my story
1: well that is a nice story uh, it is true that inside every scientist is a nerd uh it seems like you see these surveys every now and then that will, will look at uh, faculty, or they'll look at people who are working in the science field. They'll ask them questions like, "What inspired you to go down their path?" And you, know, some of the most common and top answers, of course, are things like Star Trek, uh, Star Wars is another one up there. Uh, it is—it really is fascinating. It kind of puts a smile on my face when I think about, "Wow, you know, these—the work by these people who are in the world of fiction, how they inspired." so many people to try to take that and make that reality i I just think that's one of those fascinating uh cool positive things that has come out of geekery that was kind of it sounds like that was kind of what it was for you too
0: oh yeah i mean it, it's directly traceable to Gene Roddenberry and george Lutons. And, and then on the fiction side isaac asimov robert Heinlein, ben bova larry niven uh just fantastic Alberian zimmer bradley ursula le guin uh Wow. <laughs> With that, and meeting those folks, getting their autograph. I've got about a stack of autograph books over here. I'm a total fan, of people, uh If he's conventionally from the writers' corner, and meet them today, bro. Right? Some of the great writers today. I, I, I really want to meet Stephen Baxter. I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. Um, a lot of writers I'd like, really enjoy this stuff and, and look forward to meeting a chance to meet on in the possible. possible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, love the work of Chet Manning Chet is just a great writer. I, I really enjoy this stuff. Uh, there are a lot of good books in it, writing, inspiring, entertaining science fiction.
1: Is there anything right now that you're you're into like you're watching? So have you like watched the newest season of Picard, which is pretty good? Is there any uh, stories or books that you're really into at the moment?
0: Well, I really, really like uh the books that are at the basis of the expanse. Um I haven't watched the expanse because basically it's too close to the books. And I love the books, Leviathan Waits by uh the two guys who write as James S H. Corey. Uh it was really it was really funny because I started reading that book and mine, which was instead. Uh because I didn't want to go to bed. I was afraid I was gonna miss something. <laughs> well that I could write that well. Um so I'm really into that, and as far as shows go, oh my god, uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. That has to ah. be the Star Trek since the original Star Trek. And I love The Mandalorian. Um, I'm, I'm not as huge a Star Wars fan, but boy, if I'm all as good as The Mandalorian, I'll be back in it. Uh, you know, that's just been a great, a great show. Um, if you like Dystopic, which I don't generally like, I would hate this show up if it hadn't had a positive ending. Fortunately, I won't leave this thing it did have a positive ending it's called the dark it's a german series It's on Netflix.
1: yes i have seen that yeah
0: uh, well worth investing your time in it's time travel done erotic right. and uh again if it had a dystopic ending i would never recommend it but it did and so i would recommend people maybe check that out on Netflix. it's just a relevant.
1: yeah it's like uh it's like a bit more scientific adult version of stranger things to describe people haven't seen it. it it really is good though it is worth your time maybe not like something to watch with the kids per se
0: no but... it's heavy for that no yeah. no no no. uh and you have to be in the mood for it but I, I'll, I'll tell you i got booked and i got booked, seriously booked at the end of season one and seasons two and i really really loved the whole story arc. and the ending was just phenomenal it's well it watching about the way
1: it makes me feel a little better, though, to hear you say that, you know, you have to be careful not reading at night because then you won't you won't go to bed on time. You'll be tired in the morning. I have this problem often, so it's glad that me, a rather undisciplined person, uh, at least has this common with uh, you. You're right. Strange, uh, Strange New World is pretty good. I think there's been a lot of great sci-fi shows in the last five years. I think you would like The Expanse. Uh, they didn't they didn't adapt all the books so far they kind of end right before they get more into the stuff with aliens um, but what for what it is it is pretty good i think overall you will you will enjoy that because i've read the books i've seen the show
0: i probably will watch it eventually when the refreshing but I, I read the books and i started watching it and i knew everything that was going to happen and it was oh, like oh uh, yeah okay I, I understand what you mean i need to need to wait until later and you know as a writer my goal is to have that page teller to teach you up at one right so I'm going to continue striving for that as a, as a science fiction writer, um, and I, I just really have a great admiration for for authors who can take me in. Uh I, I find it inspiring from a from a literary point, from a writing point of view. But I also like just good storytelling because you know good storytelling was people overcoming obstacles uh, to to get out of a problem or to fix a problem or to make a wrong right. And uh, I I love that kind of thing uh, because I. I believe that's, you know, that's the striving of life, right? And mm-hmm. so I'm going to get preaching for a minute. I'm going to tell all your listeners, you don't read dystopian literature. If it's got a down or an ending, leave it all on the shelf, unpurchased, right? We need people who are going to be thinking about problems and inspired by how to solve those problems, not people in general. Um, so uh, I, I, I am not a big fan of dystopian virtue.
1: There was a, a wave that was into dystopian fiction in the, the 2010s. I think post-COVID, a lot of that interest has died down. I'm mean, still around some, but I don't think people are quite as into it as they used to be. What does your, what do you, what, one, what do your coworkers think of your book writing and being an author? What what does your family think? Do they read your books? Do they ever have comments for you on that?
0: Um, I don't know. I think my, well, my, my, my kids aren't really into science fiction all that much. They're young adults. I say kids. You know, they're in their 20s and early 30s. Uh, neither one of them is a big science fiction fan. But they've been supportive. I have read a few of my books, not all of them. Uh, my wife has read parts of the books, but she's also not a big science fiction fan. But she's very supportive of what I do. She loves conventions and talking about the future, but just doesn't read much of that kind of literature. Um, and that's okay. I'm fine with that. Now, my coworkers have been surprised at Lynn um, they are enthusiastic about it. And I think they like the idea of the work that they're doing being popularized so that people might get a better appreciation of what they do. Because even, you know, I have to tell you, what I do is a great job, but it's still a job sometimes. And you do the garage and, and they get in meetings, and issues and budgets and you know, difficult people that you had to deal with. You know, it's still the state called work right? And one of the things that help makes it tolerable is, A, you think about what you're doing and how exciting it is, and B, when it launches, it's, it makes it all worth it, okay? But at the same time, when we're in the middle of it, to know that people on the outside are looking in and saying, hey, the general stuff that they're doing, advancing space technology for a future, that's a big trick. And uh, I think besides fiction writing, hopefully is an outreach, which is not the reason I'll do it, uh, for work purposes, I want to, like I said, I want to inspire many out there and entertain people. But I also wanted to learn something and gain an appreciation during some of the I
1: I, When you said that your family doesn't really read your books, I can relate. This seems to be something I've noticed a lot with creatives is like they'll work on these big projects. and Maybe they might even be famous to people uh, out there outside their family, but then, like their actual family members have like they don't read it. They don't listen. They don't watch. I don't know why that is. That's kind of true for my my own family circle as well. Uh, my mom sometimes reads and listens to my stuff, so that's nice. But that's about as far as it goes. I don't know why that is. Maybe it, maybe it's too close. Familiarity,
0: so yeah. Uh, you know, some uh, biblical on you know, prophets have never accepted in the style as the channel, right? I think <laughs> that familiarity kind of makes it think what. I know this person. I know all the terrible things they do. I remember when they failed that assignment. How can you possibly write a book well, somebody wants to read? Me. Um I think that's and, and I don't think that's a conscious thing. It's just here from me, if they know me. You know? And uh I don't know. It doesn't bother me in the least. They're all supportive. That's what came Um True. And and I and I really appreciate it.
1: Well, Les, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Uh, where can people find your book? Where can they find you online if they want to follow uh, your work, your talks, your writings, et
0: cetera? Sure. Uh, I have a website, LesJohnsonAuthor.com, all one word LesJohnsonAuthor, L E S J R H A N N S O N E T H N R O R.com, which you can put that and share show That'd be great. I am on LinkedIn as LesJohnson1. I got in early. <laughs> Lots of Les Johnson's out there. Um, I am on Facebook. I have my personal page as well as a fan page. I have to warn people that there's also a Les Johnson author on Facebook who is an expert in fly fishing. That is not me. <laughs> I'm the space guy, not the fly fishing. So if you search one or the other on Amazon or otherwise, um, my books are all widely available. Uh, they are published in physical book format. Uh, uh, Bayon is distributed by Simon & Schuster, so you can find it at Barnes & Noble. Just any major bookstore, you can order them on Amazon. And my audiobooks are on Audible, um, and there are e in Kindle, Apple Bookstore, uh, uh, all these oh, other yeah. so They're all generally available.
1: Yeah, the other Les Johnson Les Johnson on YouTube is like a hunting channel. I think he has like fifty thousand subs. I wonder if it's the same person as yeah, the fly it fishermen. is He's an
0: outdoorsman and he might be a hunter <laughs> and a fisherman. And given how many viewers he has compared to me, I may have picked the wrong field to go but YouTube or, or or Facebook with because apparently going hunting and fishing is a lot more popular than thinking about space dispensable so <laughs> exploration.
1: Just just a little bit. Just yeah. a little bit. <laughs> Well, Les, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for for coming on the show. Um, We're going to wrap it up here, guys. A quick shout out to my editor, Chris Holowicki, for uh, working on the podcast and helping make this whole show possible. Thanks again to the organizations, Young Voices, and of course, BAME Books, who help uh, produce and publish this podcast. And of course, thank you to all you listeners and viewers. And until next time, my friends, keep geeking.